This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, Donald Trump causes yet another furor, and Hillary Clinton visits the Monitor for an editorial board meeting. My name's Clay Wirestone. I'm a writer and editor here at the Monitor, and I'm joined this week, as most weeks, by our managing editor, John Van Fleet. Hi, John. Hello, Clay. And by reporter, Ella Nilsson. Hi, Ella. Hi, Clay. So, John, you promised us some sort of opening, but... Uh... Well, you know, so we had talked about starting this podcast by talking about Donald Trump. Fair yes. enough, right? He certainly makes some headlines. But I, I wanted to have a little confession that... It's good for the soul. Isn't yeah. it? Isn't it? So, there, you know how you get a song stuck in your head? And it just kind of like, it's very difficult to get out once, you've, once it's there. Yes. Uh, someone mentioned to me that uh, reminded me of the little-known band, the Presidents of the United States of America, and their big one-hit wonder, She's Lump. Actually, I think the name of the song was Lump. That's right. But if you change Trump with Lump, it's quite a catchy tune, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. You're going to sing it for us? Uh, not really. No. I think that's probably wise, <laughs> all things considered. <laughs> I've never heard your singing voice, John. It's it's gorgeous. <laughs> so, so yes, uh, as John mentioned, uh, Donald Trump has been in the news a lot this last week. Um, Does that make sense, what I'm telling you here? Yes. All right. I, I'm, I'm familiar with the song Lump. It was parodied by Weird Al Yankovic as Gump, mm-hmm. talking about Forrest Gump. So there you Back go. Back in the day. So. Maybe this is the, the next idea for Weird Al. Uh, maybe so. Um, but on Monday, Donald Trump put out a press release in which he suggests... He's Trump. He's Trump. Okay, yes. We, we, we've got it. Uh, in which uh, Donald Trump suggested barring all Muslims from the United States for... A, a temporary period of time until we could get a handle on what's going on or, or some such thing. Um, and this proposal was met rather predictably by outrage uh, from the Democratic side of the aisle, but it was also met with a lot of condemnation from fellow Republicans. Uh, many of his opponents in the GOP primary said that Trump's proposal was not part of the you know, American idea, and even uh, newly elected Speaker of the House Paul Ryan uh, came out against Trump's idea as well. Um, Trump has stood his ground more or less in the days since then, although he's he's tempered he's tempered his language just a bit, saying that you know he loves the good Muslims and he just wants them to help find find out the bad ones. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think it's also been shown in the last you know. Uh, 14 years or so since uh, the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks that actually Muslim Americans have uh, assisted the FBI numerous times Mm -hmm. in turning in uh, potential uh, terror suspects. But, John, um, 
you know, this is obviously kind of the latest Trump eruption. Um, is it going to hurt him or is it going to help him? Uh, I think so. United Survey Center has released another poll. Trump is still the clear front runner in New Hampshire. Is it? I think these help him. I think, uh, as much has been reported now, this isn't necessarily a unique thing, that, that Trump, he doesn't have to spend a lot of money on advertising. He says these things and all eyes are on him. All commentary is about him. And so he's, he's the, the, the thing that you talk about, whether you are with him or you denounce him. And so either way, he's captivated people's attention. I think that there's still a, uh, there's our editorial kind of took, took the psychology of Trump on or the psychology of a Trump supporter. He says the things that make, you know, in oversimplistic ways, he says that basically these people are our enemy, we don't want these people here, and it's, it can be refreshing to hear those things in, when no one else says those things. You know, that, that kind of revolt against political correctness. He's not that. Um, so finally, someone's saying the things that deep down inside we feel. And, and that's the kind of the, the, the ethos, I guess, of a, of a Trump supporter. Beyond all of, you know... the as we talked about last week, which was jobs in the economy are still issue number one. But really, you know, deep down, some people are like, right on. He said it like it is. And that's why he continues to lead. I think it is. I, I agree with your point there. But I don't think that Trump is the only person that's saying this because um, there have been a number of pieces put out. You know, there have been plenty of the other Republican candidates have been saying things similar to what Trump is saying. They're just not saying it as quite as loudly enough. And I think with the whole sort of, you know, why are Trump supporters so just still whatever he says they they are really into, I think it's sort of more of that idea that Trump still cannot be bought um, and that with other Republican candidates that have super PACs and, and there's, this, there's this big, I think, idea among Trump, Trump supporters that the other candidates are being influenced. Um, but Trump is not, you know, as they think, is not being funded by anybody. He's not being influenced by anybody. He is his own man and he says his own things. And so I do think you're right. I think people see him as refreshing. But I don't think he's the lone voice in this. I just think that he is the loudest, uh, most well-positioned voice. Well, I mean, certainly when there were calls, you know, a week or two before to limit or stop um, the, you know, Syrian refugees from coming into the United States, you know, many Republican candidates uh, agreed with that position, and the U.S. House even voted, you know, overwhelmingly in favor of a bill meant to make that more difficult for Syrian refugees to come into the United States. You know, as is his tendency, I think, what Trump does is take, you know, kind of a stance that, you know, has been in the air that people have been talking about, and then he takes it to a, another level. So instead of just saying, well, it's about people from one country or two countries, um, it's all the people who, who follow a religion. And, and of course, we should also say that, I mean, most experts, you know, it's, it's a, probably a roundly unconstitutional idea. It's a religious test uh, because of our First Amendment, which protects free exercise of religion. 
there's basically no way to enforce such a thing. Um, and also, of course, there's no way to, to actually test it effectively. You know, how would, how would you ask someone coming into the country if they're a Muslim? And if they say no, how could you prove them wrong? You know, it's, it's a, um, you know, that's an, that's an, you know, an interesting question. Um, you know, I think the other, the other point, though, is that, um, as John was saying about Trump's polling numbers, the New York Times had a, had a new poll that came out today as well, putting Trump at his largest national lead ever, at uh, 35% of Republicans saying that he, he, uh, support, they support him. Of course, what's interesting is that two-thirds of Americans then expressed concern about, about Trump running. So, you know, that's always, that's always the, that's the question that remains to be answered about Trump is just because he has a lead now in a field of still 14 candidates in the GOP, does that actually mean that there is ultimately enough support in the party to make him their nominee or enough support in the country to elect him president? I think that's going to be a really interesting question to see. And I think that Trump is still being helped by the fact that there are so many other candidates that are still in the field. There is no, there's no, uh, you know, noticeable uh, alternative. There's no one person that can take him on in a Republican field because it's still so crowded. And I've talked to, it's, it's been interesting because I've been talking to different people that are sort of, you know, in, in New Hampshire's Republican Party and, and some people depending, you know, I've talked to people that have been in the party for years and are kind of uh, very plugged in. And I've talked to some younger voters who say, we think it's great that there are so many candidates. We think it's really healthy. We think that Trump is bringing people into the Republican Party. We may not necessarily agree with everything he says, but it's, you know, it's we're seeing something new and interesting here. You could also argue that, you know, even though Trump is, is bringing in all these people that think he's really popular and really like what he's saying, he is also alienating large segments of the population with things that he's saying. And that would be, I guess, mostly minority, women, things like that. You could certainly make that argument that he's alienating those segments. But I think it's, it's, it's you know, we've been, people have been saying for months now, all summer, all fall, now we're heading into winter. It'll be interesting to see if Trump goes away and when he will go away and it, it's just not happening, so. I mean, I think at this point, it, you, you, we literally have to see primary and caucus results to, to know because, you know, the, again, the people that, that look at polls say, you know, yes, maybe he has 25, 30, 35 percent support. But again, that's among Republicans who have made up their minds about who they're going to vote for in a primary. That's a tiny fraction of, of the Republicans overall. And um, UNH's poll is a little bit different. If the so they 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 talk to people, they call them who have voted Republican in the past, and they ask if they're if you're going if you're planning to vote in the next election, yes, you know, and so these are likely Republican voters, and they ask the question if the if the election was held today, who would you vote for? And the majority of these likely Republican voters said Trump. And unlike earlier polls, Clay, that we talked about, where Trump far and away had the biggest unfavorability, he had the biggest lead, but he was also the most unfavorable candidate as well. He no longer holds that distinction. One of the things that I thought interesting about this poll was Jeb Bush has a higher unfavorability rating than Donald Trump. And Elle and I were talking about it earlier today because she's been going through some of the, the spending records, the ad 
the ad spending for these candidates. And, you know, Jeb Bush, he's playing it by the book. He's playing it by the old campaign playbook, which is you take out your ads, you do your handshakes, you go to your events, and Trump doesn't do any of that. He's spending virtually nothing in New Hampshire. He doesn't he doesn't do the the glad handing. He shows up at these big events, he has his press conferences and he jets out. His, and you can expect that he's going to say something bombastic, flamboyant, whatever you want to call it, and it's working. So I wonder if we are seeing a a rewriting of the political playbook right now. If Donald Trump, whether he's elected or not, what we're witnessing is a, a rewriting of how to run for president in the United States. Absolutely. And I think that that's super interesting, especially with, you know, everybody before the election was talking about how influential super PACs are going to be this time around and how much big money is influencing politics. And now we're seeing with Donald Trump in the mix, like, yes, super PACs are influential. There's millions of dollars pouring into New Hampshire for these, these campaigns, but all the guys that whose who's, uh, FCC filings I've been looking through spent, you know, dropping $300,000 on one ad buy or $250,000 on one ad buy, they're still far down in the polls compared to a man who has spent very little. I haven't seen his name come up yet in uh, the FCC filings. So that is fascinating. You know, the, the, the slogan that has been floating through my mind as we have been talking about Trump here is, um, and I, I'll, I'll do a little quiz to see if either of you can can, note it, can identify the source of this, is in your heart, you know he's right. It's the slogan of a presidential candidate in the 1960s. Anyone? I think I think it's interesting because when Ella, when you were talking about Trump supporters, like that's very much the the the, the point. It's like in your heart, you know he's right, like that, that that he's he's speaking to something unexpressed previously by people. Anyway, any other any ideas? Do tell. Okay, that that was the slogan of Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. when he was running in I believe 1964 against Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, the Goldwater run was famous because it was essentially one of the few times in, in recent memory that the Republican Party nominated someone who was really on the far right of the party, and they were wiped out in, in that election. But it's also important to note that, and actually one of Barry Goldwater's supporters that election was Hillary Clinton, which we should point out. Mm-hmm. She was a Goldwater girl, uh, at least. <laughs> um, but, you know, many of the seeds of the modern conservative movement were sown uh, with uh, Goldwater's run. And a lot of what he talked about, um, you know, strongly, strongly libertarian, strongly, you know, socially conservative. These are all trends that, that you know, grew much stronger in the party. Um, so, Ella, I understand you're actually going to go see Trump today. I am, Yes. He is going to be in Portsmouth. Um, I feel like he always, there's always some big national blow up. I feel like he keeps saying things like in the South, like his, his, contra- his really controversial comments keep being made in like South Carolina or something. But that, that could also just be me. Uh, well, he also, did, he also did make the comment about, he put out the uh, statement about Muslims on like the day that a poll showed that um, Ted Cruz had overtaken him in an Iowa right. poll. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think that a lot of this stuff is very calculated on his part. I mean, he's very, he's off the cuff. But, you know, when you see Trump at events, I, he, I think he's very smart in terms of how he works his audience. And, you know, 
<laughs> it is it is something kind of like anything, unlike anything else, I should say. Well, the Washington Post, I think it was, did an analysis of all of the words. It was like, the New York Times. It was the New York Times mm-hmm. that did, the, did uh, of all of the words spoken by Trump basically over a month. So like all of his tweets, all of his speeches, and actually showed that he, he's he's relatively disciplined about what he does, which is that he tests out lines of attack on various other candidates. He'll bring them up in a rally, and maybe there's not a lot of response. He'll try it again. If there isn't a lot of response, then he'll just drop it. But then if he sees that things, you know, kind right. of take off, he'll start to, you know, hone it and, and push it more. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, is, is, is the mark of someone who at the very least um, understands public communication. And of course he does. He's a reality TV show star. And I think the other thing that that New York Times article, and I'm, I'm kind of actually wondering if we're talking about the same article now, but, um, oh. but the, the New York Times article that I read analyzed, I think, like 95,000 words that Trump had said and, and found that, you know, the things that he's talking about are very dark and put fear into people. But he's not saying it really. You you don't really feel depressed when you go to a Trump event. Well, <laughs> depending on who you are. <laughs> but the the sort of the mood of the events is kind of fun. You know, he's kind of joking around. He's very off the cuff. He says you know crazy things. He can tell. He'll tell personal stories, and it's kind of like you're meeting a celebrity, and it's so fun. And you know, the press, the the Atlantic wrote an article saying you know even though he's kind of getting more and more combative with the press. I mean, the press is there. He's going to say something crazy. His news is going to get made. Like, it's it's a fun time. But in the subtext of that, there's this very dark, fearful language that's coming out. So I think that Trump is, he's a master of working an audience. He understands his audience very well. And he's clearly playing the system better than anybody else. Well, and, I, and actually, it is a it is a post story that I was I, that I okay. was talking about. But I think the Times was like maybe analyzing language choices they, exactly, whereas Absolutely. the Post here is is actually analyzing just kind of number of tweets and who they're going against and kind of his his language at rallies. But John, you were saying I was going to ask Ella about uh, the last time he Trump was in New Hampshire. You were actually pulled behind the scenes a little yes, bit. What, I, I was was, very, what happened there? I was very confused, and I'm still very confused <laughs> about that. Yeah, so the last time uh, Trump had an event, it was the one that was up in Waterville Valley. Um, and so I, the uh, Andrew Georgievitz, who's the, he, I think he's the New Hampshire state director, um, he was looking for a reporter from the Concord Monitor or the Laconia Daily Sun. I am assuming because we were sort of the most local media outlet that was there. Um, and so I had actually never met Andrew before, but I got, so he, he told me to first uh, leave my notepad, just bring my phone, bring my notebook or my, um, excuse me, my laptop, and then told me to leave it there, brought me backstage. I was, I didn't know why I was being brought back there. And of course, all these thoughts are racing through my mind, like, oh my God, am I about to go interview Donald Trump? Um and the reason that I was there was to take a photo with my iPhone of Trump signing the Axe the Tax Pledge in New Hampshire. Um, and so I was sort of brought back to this area um, and I couldn't really see what was happening in the backstage. I was told that I had to wait in a certain spot until I was called for. 
And at this point, I'm still like, uh, could somebody please tell me why I'm here? <laughs> um, so I, I got brought backstage. Trump's backstage taking photos with people. He was meeting with like small business owners backstage be- right before the event. Um, his handlers were there. His, his campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, who is from New Hampshire, was there. A lot of his New Hampshire staff. He has Secret Service now at his events, so I was told that I had to stay close to a staffer or a Secret Service would, quote, take me down. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I stood there and photographed Trump signing the Axe the Tax Pledge on my crappy little iPhone, um, which, and was told, like, you are about to have the photograph, you know, the photo op of a lifetime <laughs> by campaign staff. Uh, the photo did not end up running in the paper the next day. I did send it to our copy desk, but they decided not to use it. Uh, they went with AP photos instead, which are professionally taken by Jim Cole. And uh, But Trump, I think, thought that I was uh, an, an audience member. So he saw me and he goes, who's this young lady? And asked me if I wanted to take a photo with him. Um, and I told him no, because I'm a reporter. And he said, oh, well, would you still like to take a photo with me? (laughs) And I said, no, Mr. Trump, but I'd love to get an interview with you because we have been trying to get an interview with Donald Trump for quite some time. Um, He asked his campaign manager if, quote, do we like the Concord Monitor? Do we like this reporter? Uh, And then he told me that I would get an interview. And I have been following up and I've still gotten no response. And he actually tried to, he, he motioned me to come backstage with him, but um, his, his campaign staff barred me from going back. So. Put an end to that. Yeah, put an um, end to that nonsense. The brush, the brush with Trump. The brush with Trump. So I don't know if there will be another one tonight, but well, I doubt it. We will see. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to happen That's at a Trump event. Never. So Ella has departed, but now uh, John and I are here and delighted to talk about the visit, actually two days ago now, of Hillary Clinton to the Monitor Newsroom. Uh, She'd been here eight years ago when she was running in the 2008 primary contest against Barack Obama. Um, Her campaign in New Hampshire that time was successful, uh, but not her not her general uh, primary campaign. This time, it actually may be the other way around, as Bernie Sanders has been leading in some recent polls, but uh, Clinton seems to have a commanding nationwide majority, majority at least. She talked to monitor editors and reporters for about an hour and a half, and John, you were, you were there, as was I, and uh, what, were your, what were your impressions? Well, uh, before I get into that, I I do want to say that I was looking at some archive photos today of the earlier, the 2007 Hillary Clinton visit to the Monitor, and you were a much younger man back then, Clay. Well, younger, yes. I don't know how I feel about much, but (laughs) I was indeed there too, yes. The, um, just, the... Let's juxtapose the visits a little bit. The first Mm -hmm. time she was here, there was a much stricter security, I've Mm -hmm. been told. 
that there were employees were told to move their cars from one side of the parking lot to the other. There was a security sweep of the building before she came in that a, a dedicated phone line and a vacant room needed to be set up adjacent to the edit board interview in case there was something going on nationally or internationally that she needed to bail out of the interview for. And also, when she got here, she made her way around the building and did a lot of handshaking and nice to meet you and all that sort of stuff. Um, so this visit was a little different. Mm -hmm. uh, we were not told to bring our cars anywhere special. We parked just where we normally park. There wasn't a big Secret Service sweep. Uh, a few of the employees who tried to get into the building after she was here got questioned and had to show their ID. But for those of us that were in the building, we just kind of informally hung out, and she walked into the the interview room, the the conference room, like any candidate has before her. The, but there also wasn't a big swoop through the building, a lot of handshaking. She did was on a bit of a tight schedule. You said she spoke for ninety minutes. Uh, I think she was late to her Salem event, which was due to start at 6 o'clock. We had her here well past 5 o'clock, and she mm -hmm. needed to drive down to Salem. So, you know, it was interesting. You got the feeling that she would have hung around for longer, but the campaign was really pulling her away. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as as the person, as you say, who was, was there back in 07, um, you know, the, I constantly was kind of playing the comparison game in my mind. Uh, while she was here and it certainly felt to me like back in 2007 she she and her campaign felt as though uh, an appearance like this at the monitor was in some ways higher stakes um, she was really neck and neck with Barack Obama at that time or I mean I think they got the impression that he was he was rapidly ascendant they wanted to lock down the endorsement of the monitor editorial page and you know, she was coming from a different point as well. She was a, a senator from New York who was hoping to become president. And so there was a big emphasis made, I think, just on her part in preparing, in, in showing herself to be exceptionally well briefed in all areas and very, very respond, you know, very responsive to any and all questions to all the people in, in the building. You know, this time she's coming from a very different perspective. I mean, she spent many years as Secretary of State uh, under President Obama. And given the way that the national uh, picture has changed in the last few weeks, you know, uh, foreign policy questions were about two-thirds of the questions we asked her, at least two-thirds of the time, really, of, of that interview. And it's an area in which she's extremely comfortable, in which she's extremely well-versed. And I don't think she felt, you know, it didn't seem as though she felt any particular pressure, you know, to to appear, you know, anything other than what she was, which was a, um, you know, a extremely knowledgeable foreign policy veteran, you know, who was who was able to summon up, you know, facts and figures without without much much difficulty, um, you know. But but as I said, she seemed more relaxed, and frankly, she seemed like she was just glad to have a chance to like sit down and and talk to people in a very low key way. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it was it was not a it was 
in, in a way, I almost felt like she was taking it as she was using it as a chance to recharge almost before like a really high intensity, loud public event. You know, this was a, a lower key thing. She was very relaxed in her chair. She leaned back um, and she took her time. And, um, you know, and, and as I said, you know, just thinking back to, to the last. She clapped once. She did. She did. Well, there was a there was a there was a question that really, uh, really excited her. That was whether um, energy efficiency was the actual business opportunity for the United States. Yes. And she clapped and said, "Absolutely." Yes. Yes. Well, and I think in a, in a way that's that's a question that you know has probably been asked of her a little less frequently lately mm -hmm. with all of the with all of the foreign policy goings on um but yeah i mean i i, I, I thought you crossed the line with all of your questions about benghazi I, I did not ask a lot of questions about benghazi actually any questions about benghazi we should actually mention that what we also did during the interview was we had a periscope feed mm -hmm. of her appearance mm -hmm. and so people were able to to watch live mm -hmm. as she uh, as she spoke um, at our peak we had somewhere between you know 160 170 180 people watching mm -hmm. um, among those people were um, the students of an uh, of a journalism class at the University of New Hampshire taught by Meg Heckman former monitor reporter and those students posted questions for Hillary Clinton uh, on the feed, and, and I was able to ask a couple of those uh, during the, the editorial board meeting as well. And, of course, because the Periscope feed is archived, many people were able to watch it and capture parts of it after the fact. I believe a snippet of it appeared on Frontline. And I believe Nightline. Actually. Nightline. And another snippet appeared on Fox News. Oh, really? What was the Fox News snippet? It was uh, Ray Duckler, our news columnist, asked the question if uh, she agreed with the president's speech, uh, with the president's address from the other night. And she said she did. Mm -hmm. And so Fox um, played that and basically said to the effect of, she agrees with the president and the president's policies are an abject failure. This is terrible. Um, I did not see it, so I'm recounting a summary. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I just felt like, frankly, my feeling about, about sitting through the interview was she, se she seemed relaxed. She seemed very comfortable. And it could have been the room because it was about 90 degrees. It was very, very <laughs> warm. It's true. But, you know, I think a lot of times when you have candidates in to for an editorial board meeting they feel like they have something to prove mm -hmm. you know and this can and, and it's it's a very peculiar dynamic because you know you know the monitor is not usa today or the new york times or the washington post we're better no but um you know we are a a smaller newspaper in a smaller market in a small state and yes the state has outside importance in talking about presidential candidates but, but you know, still, it's, it's not like we, we have a, a tremendous amount of weight to throw around. And yet, you know, you can have politicians, and I don't care, you know, where they are in the polls. A lot of the times they still feel like if they're in front of a group of journalists, they want to show that they know the issues. They want to show that they can, 
you know, they're in command of a back and forth, you know, and, and they're not all equally successful at that. But I, I definitely do feel sometimes there's, you know, there's that desire to please. Mm-hmm. You often see in people who are, you know, who are public figures of one kind or another, performers or, you know, politicians or whatever, they, they, they want a reaction from people. And, and so to me, what was interesting about Hillary Clinton was I felt there was much less of that from her. She was not actually looking to impress as much as just, you know, as she often says, have, have a conversation, mm-hmm. but also just put across what, what she knew. She also may have been um, uniquely comfortable here because there's no other candidate that can walk in with a previous endorsement from the Concord Monitor. Mm-hmm. So she's got that already in the bank, and so therefore she comes in from a place of comfort. You know? And so you one, one could argue that she's if she doesn't get the endorsement again, that would be a big deal. Uh, that would be a, a loss for her. And so therefore she's coming in with this this kind of comfort with the, the newspaper as a whole, even though that many of us are different. Um, a lot of the news news folks have... Uh, have turned over, have since, turned over since 2007. Yes, it's true. And so myself included, I'm a newbie here, you know, barely a year, still wet behind the ears. And... Um, not, not literally. Yeah, I hope. Um, although you know, there's also still you know folks like Ralph Jimenez, our um, our editorial writer, mm-hmm. was, was certainly there uh, uh, in in '07, as well as as well as Ray Duckler, who you were you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting contrast, and um, I guess we're going to be seeing Bernie Sanders again. I mean, I don't have any specifics on the dates, but I know that he he visited us many months ago. Before he had officially announced his candidacy, it was really at the beginning where he was just kind of testing the waters and uh, came in here. And that also was a very informal conversation, you know, much less Bernie-esque, you know, the less, you know, outrage, less, less zest, if you will. It was very subdued. And it was it was fine, but you know I, I see Bernie Sanders speak now, and I'm like that is not the same guy that we had in, in our edit board. Well, I mean, in many ways, the the what people think of as Bernie Sanders has been created on the campaign trail, and it's what you saw back in '07 and '08 with Barack Obama too, mm-hmm. who you know was a was and is an incredibly low key person you know, one-on-one, mm-hmm. but the campaign trail and the crowds turned him almost into this, this you know, kind of public orator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the time, you know, confounded even him a little bit. But, you know, I mean, H- Hillary Clinton is, you know, love her or hate her, she is who she is. I mean, I, I think that's the other, the other thing that, that struck me is that, you know, she came in, she's, I believe, 69 years old. Um, so she is definitely on the she's on the older side of candidate, the candidates running to now, although not not as old as Bernie Sanders, we should note. Um, she didn't do a great deal to to you know particularly mask her age or to to hide what she, what she looked like. I mean, she had very kind of minimal minimal makeup on, and and you know, and I and I don't mean to to focus overly on on the appearance here, but 
But politics, like any other kind of performance, as I was saying, is a lot about what you portray yourself as. And she's not trying to portray herself, from what I can tell, as anything other than what she is. You know, you know a, a 69-year-old, she called herself a wonk during the, uh, during the, the editorial board. Mm -hmm. you know? Of her answers, Clay, what stuck out for you? She didn't. She didn't break a lot of new ground. We did. We talked amongst ourselves after the edit board, and we were looking for what what news did she break? And the overall consensus was she didn't really break a lot of news. That it was it was mostly a a recitation of her positions on a great number of issues, but nothing totally new. She brought up she brought up Trump on her own, and then we mm -hmm. followed up with a question about Trump. Uh, our editorial page editor, Dana Wormald, he asked a kind of a interesting and funny question. Uh, if you remember, right at the end, he said, you know, people always say they'll move to Canada if so-and-so is elected. Who would make you move to Canada if they were elected? And she did not take the bait. No. She didn't even take the bait of the UNH student who was asking if she would put Bernie Sanders in her, in her cabinet. If she were elected president, um, I would say of the of the answers well, that she, she can't because well, she, she's putting Martin O'Malley in the cabinet. Oh well, we'll see about that. Uh, I think there were um, at least two two of her answers that that's, that stuck with me, and I, maybe it had more to do with the emphasis rather than if they were anything particularly new. And it, one of them was in her response to a question about gun violence and what she would do about. Um, trying to, you know, kind of curb, you know, the prevalence of weapons in our society. This was something posed by a UNH student. And towards the end of her questions, and her questions tended to, her answers tended to have an interesting form where she'd kind of have a little statement at the beginning and then she'd kind of go off through some digressions and some background information and then she'd ultimately usually kind of come back around to the question at the end. There was a, a little course that she would usually follow. And towards the end of her, her answer on the gun violence question, she said, you know, this is not an issue, basically, that the federal government is going to be able to do something about immediately. You know, there is such entrenched GOP opposition to any sort of gun control bills that this is something that you're going to have to fight on a local and state level first. It has to be, and you have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And that's her point. And she used that in, an, in another answer as well. Uh, just, you know, the necessity of continuing effort, even if you don't think that there's going to be an immediate payoff, that you just have to keep working at it. And I think that that's the kind of answer that is really uniquely strong coming from a candidate like Hillary Clinton, because this is someone who has been in public life for a long time. has been someone who's been in the public eye for a long time. And so she has done basically what she's urging people to do in her answer, which is that you have to keep, you know, battling for your priorities, even if they aren't immediately achievable. Um, so, so that struck me. Um, and then, you know, her, her answer about um, loose, loose nukes towards the end, and mm -hmm. she was saying that kind of nuclear weapons in the hands of a terrorist were actually her number one concern in terms of like the threats to the safety of Americans. Which, which was interesting as well. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't know what any, what any of her did. Any of her answers particularly strike you in, in that way? Well, the question I asked was about bear cats and the militarization of police departments, and she mm-hmm. did said, you know, she said you, you can't police effectively from the inside of a bear cat. And I asked that question because you know if, if she's talking about controlling guns for the populace, I was curious in terms of how she feels about these military assault style weapons in the hands of police, and so. What do you what do you say? And and she did say that that she'd like to. Well, she didn't say she's going to curb the program. She said she we should take a look at the program right. that that donates surplus military equipment to local police departments. But she did say it's not appropriate for some smaller departments to have all of the stuff. She evoked Ferguson, Missouri, and those that that answer. Uh, was relevant to me, stuck out there for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the question I didn't ask, yes, because I'm not sure it was, um, I'm not sure it would have evoked a particularly interesting response. But I was, I was chewing on the question about this. This election is, in many ways, been marked as the the race of the outsider as we've talked about on the Republican side. The outsiders are taking all the attention. And so could her experience be her Achilles heel come a general election? That's, that's politicking. You're asking a candidate to comment on her own candidacy. And it's like, yeah, yeah. It's one of the great challenges of being a journalist and talking to politicians is that the most interesting questions sometimes will net you the least interesting answers. I mean, you can sit down and come up with a great array of questions to ask someone like Hillary Clinton, but that is not necessarily going to be a list of questions that will get any responses at all. You know, as opposed to, let's say, you know, I, um, you know, when Ralph asked the question about loose nukes, you know, I, I don't know that I had thought that that was the strongest question out of the batch that we'd, we'd worked up. But it produced one of the more interesting responses mm-hmm. from her, just because it, you know, it, it came at a slight angle from what she was prepared to talk about. And you also have things that you just have to ask about. You know, we, I think we spent a, a good 20 to 30 minutes probably talking about ISIS and Syria. And it's difficult to imagine that she would say anything revelatory to us that she would not say and like, you know, would not have said before. But that is by far the predominant news story today. So you have to, you have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're shortly going to be going into a couple of week, uh, weeks where people are hopefully not going to be paying much attention to politics at all. Uh, and then it becomes a sprint in kind of the, the, in January when everything's going to amp up about to twice the level that it is now probably. I, I was told that uh, Trump's campaign, because they've been sitting on so much money and they've spent so little, that they were going to send $1,000 bills to everyone uh, at Christmas time. Well, well, we'll keep watch for that envelope in the mail, in the mail then. <laughs> it seems like there'd be some legal concerns about that. Just maybe. Just maybe. Um, but anyway, well, John, thanks so much for talking. And unless you had something else to add out of left field... No. Okay. Well, there's a first for everything. Um, Thanks for chatting, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Clay.
Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to episodes of this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. Take care, and we'll see you next week.